Well, what do you think it says about the – we're really jumping around all over the place here, but that's what a jam session is, folks. So just... <laughs> we're jamming. Ladies and gentlemen, Bidon of America! And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What's going on, folks? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 5. A couple of notes here at the beginning of the show. Forgive me for the lateness of this week's edition of the program. I've kind of got one foot out the door here. We're taking our annual mid-season hiatus following this week's program. So, in a way, my mind has already sort of been on vacation, and I've kind of dragged my feet here to put the episode out. But it's in your hands now. It's in your earbuds, and hopefully you dig it. And we'll have more information about what we've got cooking for you starting in the beginning of April with the second half of BOA Audio Season 5 at the end of the program. So stick around for that if you want some teasers on what you'll be hearing when we come back from hiatus. Second thing on the agenda here I want to mention just really quickly is that we are once again nominated for a Zorgi Award. These are the Paul Kimmel Awards over at his blog. And it is a super tight race this year, so anybody who wants to help out who is a part of BOA Nation and wants to submit a vote, please do so, and vote for Banal of America as top podcast in the Zorgi Awards. All right, we're taking care of that business here. Let's talk about this week's edition of the program. Our guest is a true titan of parapolitical research. He is, of course, Ken Thomas, an amazingly prolific and hugely accomplished researcher and writer on all things conspiracy-related I know that I've been using the expression jam session quite a bit this season so far. I'm going to have to try and wean myself off of that. But if you'll allow me the indulgence one more time here, this is definitely a parapolitical jam session because I really went into this with only a handful of notes and the intention of sort of bouncing around to a whole bunch of different genres. And that's kind of what we do here in this conversation. We cover just about everything under the sun in the world of the paranormal and parapolitical. The memes we're going to be discussing, the genres we'll be delving into, include the UFO phenomenon, ufology and exopolitics, the disclosure movement, 9-11 and the 9-11 truth movement, JFK assassination research, Esoterica's transition from the zine era to today's internet-based scene, May Brussel, Bob Dylan, and much, much more. Plus, along the way, we're going to hear about Ken's evolution as a parapolitical researcher. We'll find out how Steam Shovel Press came about and how it changed over the years. He'll tell us about his famous Aunt Helen, the Pink Lady Gahagan, and her run for California Senate against Richard Nixon back in 1950. And we'll reflect on the problems surrounding the economics of esoterica in today's internet-based world. 
all in all, really, it is a fast and loose conversation with someone who is really a major, huge power player in the world of parapolitics. Ken Thomas has been around for decades researching the conspiracy genre, and to be able to sit down with him and just pick his brain in a laid-back, easy-going way was quite enjoyable for me. I already look forward to talking to him again, hopefully having him on BOA Audio in the not-too-distant future, but we've got a ton of stuff here for you this week as it is. So sit back, relax, and get ready to get parapolitical here on BOA Audio. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Ken Thomas, climb out from under that rock you've been living and get ready to learn quite a bit about him. Let me give you the background on Ken Thomas. Ken Thomas has authored over 15 books on various conspiracy topics, five devoted to JFK assassination research, including NASA, Nazis and JFK, Mind Control, Oswald and JFK, and Maury Island UFO. He has, for over two decades, worked as an archivist for a Midwestern university while developing his interest in parapolitics, an idea often dismissed in mainstream media as conspiracy theory. Thomas has, for many years, edited and published Steam Shovel Press, a magazine about the global conspiracy culture that coined the motto, All Conspiracy, No Theory. His most well-known book, The Octopus, Secret Government and the Death of Danny Casolaro, helped expose the Inslaw scandal of the Reagan years, a conspiracy involving a super-surveillance software and backroom deals between U.S. operatives and Mideast terrorists. Thomas tours regularly, lecturing at venues as varied as conspiracy and UFO conferences and academic panels on alternative media, and he is often tapped as a conspiracy expert on TV and radio. His current book, Secret and Suppressed 2, Banned Ideas and Hidden History into the 21st Century, compiles the latest hot-button topics in the conspiracy world. He is currently at work updating Maury Island UFO, first published as a prequel to The Octopus, documenting the role of 1947 UFO witnesses in the 1968 investigation of the JFK assassination. His website is www.steamshovelpress.com, all one word, pretty easy and pretty simple to find, steamshovelpress.com. Check it out. And so now, without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on February 6th, 2010. Ken Thomas joins us for a parapolitical jam session on BOA Audio, Season 5. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Banal of America Audio. I am supremely excited about this week's edition of the program. You know, we've had a lot of superstars on the show. We've had a lot of icons on the program. I think it's safe to say that our guest this week is truly a titan of the parapolitical field. I'm stunned that it's taken five seasons for us to have him on the show here, but we finally connected. Are you laughing over there? God, that's the biggest buildup I've gotten since uh, Kevin Nealon nominated me for an Academy Award on his Conspiracy Zone. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the cat's out of the bag, folks, who the guest is. uh, He's the author of 15 books. It may be even more by now, but at, at last count, 15 books. He's been publishing the magazine Steam Shovel Press for 18 years approximately, and the tagline for Steam Shovel Press is all conspiracy, no theory. He's really the man who popularized the term parapolitics as the replacement, I guess you could say, for the much uh, beat-up-upon term conspiracy theory. He is the titan of parapolitics. Ken Thomas, 
It's been a long time coming, but it's great to have you on the show. Yeah, yeah. I'm surprised it's taken this long, too, Tim. What the heck? I know. Don't take it personal. Don't take it personal. I should give credit, though, to Peter Dale Scott. I think he's the guy – he didn't – I don't think he coined the term parapolitics, but he was the first guy to start popularizing it, and it's a a great description of what we're talking about. But for some reason – uh, you know Peter Dale Scott, the uh, UC Berkeley professor. Yeah. Uh, uh, he abandoned the term for the term deep politics, uh, which yeah, okay. That's, and then there's a there's a deep politics forum, which is actually a good thing to monitor for people who want to follow conspiracy stuff. But I still think parapolitics uh, describes it uh, better. Deep politics sounds too deep, too serious to me. And yeah. Too much like regular politics. Exactly. It doesn't have the whole esoteric element right. to it. Right, right, right. And, yeah, well, everyone's always sort of credited you as far as championing the term. I've um, tried to popularize it yeah. more. Yeah. Yeah, and I've yeah. sort of taken the page out of your book by pushing esoterica as right. sort of the umbrella term to replace paranormal because paranormal's been completely co-opted and, That's you know, very, bastardized very by the media and everything else. So That's a very good point. I mean, it's, it, it actually it, – it, uh, parapolitics – kind of connects uh, conspiracy theory to Fortiana or Esoterica or whatever you want to call it, paranormal, you know, because mm-hmm. it's the same thing. That prefix para means things that run alongside uh, of whatever. Paranormal stuff are the things that run alongside normal reality. Parapolitics are those things that happen that kind of go alongside uh, regular politics, you know, which are elections and, and that kind of thing, whereas parapolitics are assassinations. <laughs> <laughs> conspiracies exactly yeah the, yeah the the untimely ends yes um and and as i sort of noted to you before we started taping the interview i'm going fast and loose here on the notes because uh like i said you've written 15 books you've been publishing your magazine for almost 20 years and uh it's sort of like for me i'm always intimidated by bringing in guests with such a wide berth of material because it's like it's like going to the louvre or or in this sort of uh <laughs> conspiracy realm it's like going to the san diego zoo where they hand you the map and it's like here's 35 different areas you can go to you know you don't know where to go first you don't know oh what. yeah and no one ever lets cool. me run the map either so yeah well that's well i'll, I'll try not to make you look foolish jim uh, <laughs> but, but actually that's usually the way the conversations go too you know you start talking about one thing and then it connects up to another thing and a lot of times these conversations can be going all over the map too and it's uh takes a little effort to get back to the point. Yeah, absolutely. There's so much conspiracy in the world, you know. Once you start talking, uh, you know, you don't know when to stop. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And there's always these side roads and side tangents mm-hmm. we're going to go down. So it's kind yeah. of a parapolitical jam session here on the show, which is, uh, you know, I think that's kind of in my wheelhouse anyway, the jam session style. So I'm All looking right. forward to it. Get down. I know you've done, like, tons of interviews and you've put out just tons and tons of stuff. But since it's sort of like your first appearance here on the program, and you know, I kind of look at the show in a way as a historical record for posterity's sake. I guess you could say, let's get your origin story. How did you get interested in, <laughs> you know, parapolitics and conspiracy theory, and and talk a little bit about you know your evolution? Okay, well, actually, uh, I, I trace it as far back as high school, somewhere along high school. I think actually it all began with Dustin Hoffman's a film version of Lenny Bruce's life. You know, I went to see that, and I thought, wow, who is that guy? And I became this big Lenny Bruce fan in my teen years, late teen years. And uh, Lenny Bruce's uh, autobiography, uh, quote-unquote, was actually ghosted by Paul Krasner, who was the guy that published The Realist, which is like a, you know, a, 
Uh, I'm sure you know it. It's like an underground uh, uh, newsletter. And Krasner was also allied with May Brussel. And May Brussel, of course, is the maven of conspiracy theory. Oh, yeah. So so that's a little pathway I, I traveled. And at some point, as I was beginning a writing career, uh, it got annoying to me to um, actually write things that wouldn't get published. And I was uh, developing techniques to uh, uh, actually make sure I got paid before I even started a project. And uh, that led actually to this interview that I had once with Ram Dass, you know, uh, who is Richard Alpert. And, uh, you know, you know Ram Dass and Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert and Timothy Leary were fired from Harvard together. Yep, you know yep. Yeah, right, right. Actually, you know, it's interesting. Richard Alpert is actually a character in Lost. Uh, yeah, that threw me off for a moment because yeah. I had my wheels spinning in the, in the yeah, Lost they're not, direction. they're not subtle on that show. They, you know, they just had their six-season opening, and there was a new character, these people are living in a temple, and there was one guy who had John Lennon glasses on. Guess what his name is? Oh, Lennon. <laughs> oh, man. So you're a big Lost fan? Uh, just of late. I had to catch up on all five years before this one started. Okay, because we're doing a Lost spinoff. I might have to have you back in, in short order for our for our little Lost spinoff program. Oh, that'd be point. great. Yeah, yeah sure. for sure. Yeah. But anyway, I had this uh, long conversation with Ron Doss, which was a wonderful thing, actually. And uh, he, even, he even blessed me, ran, ran a knuckle on my breastbone. That's a kind of Hindu blessing. And I did this, actually, at the behest of a local newspaper, something called the Riverfront Times. <clears throat> and when I finally produced it, they decided they didn't want it uh, because Ron Doss had come and gone. You know, there's no point in doing this interview. It's not promoting anything and, yeah. you know, and all this other stuff. So here I am with this great Ron Doss interview. Uh, I charged the Riverfront Times a kill fee, so I did get paid. But, you know, I still wanted to use this thing because it was a pretty good thing. So... That's how the first issue of Steam Shovel Press came about. I had this thing, and I wanted to use it. And and at that point, of course, Steam Shovel was a much smaller newsletter. This is like 1988, too, I'm embarrassed to say. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, so I produced a small newsletter for a number of reasons, not the least of which was when at that time, it's like pre-internet almost, um, if you produced a newsletter and presented it to publishers, they would send you free books. Oh, yeah. and, and as a conspiracy guy, you know, I love JFK books, and JFK books are these big yak-choking things that cost, you know, $20, $30 a piece. And I thought, well, if I could just produce this newsletter, I could get a steady flow of that stuff for uh, for nothing. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's what happened. That's how, the, that's how the first issue came along. And it's a small newsletter for three issues. The second issue uh, was when I first started getting into – a lifelong uh, research topic of mine, Wilhelm Wright, and I, I did an issue devoted to Reich. And the third issue, I had an interview with Amiri Baraka, Leroy Jones, probably the the only black member of the Beat Generation, not the only one, but the most famous one. And at that time, at the time of the third newsletter, May Brussel died, and uh, there was another um, magazine called Critique which actually started out as a square-bound thing, looked like a very serious academic journal. Uh, and it published uh, John Judge and, uh, and Dave Emery and all these guys who were writing conspiracy things, and mm -hmm. it was a great thing. But the guy who was a publisher had joined a cult of <laughs> some sort. I can almost remember his guru's name. I think it was Le Masters. And he changed the name of the he changed the mag the the square bound thing to a regular size looking magazine. Changed the title of it to Sacred Fire, 
And instead of conspiracy stuff, he started publishing these homilies of his guru, you know, and all this new age. Oh, weird. Kind of soft-minded crap, basically. So critique was, was gone. Now, May Brussel had died. And I'm thinking, you know, as a consumer of conspiracy stuff, ever since the Lenny Bruce, Paul Krasner, May Brussel pathway opened up in my, in my mind, <laughs> as a consumer of this stuff, I'm thinking, this is over. You know, this kind of writing uh, is is not going to happen if if nobody does anything. Uh, you know, with these serious uh, kind of death blows to the whole subcult of it. Yeah. So at the, at the end of the third issue, I said, call for papers, send me your conspiracy stuff, and I'm going to, you know, turn this newsletter of mine into a conspiracy thing. And uh, that was the beginning of something that really goes on to this day. I mean, every week I get screeds and theses and uh, writings and book manuscripts and, you know, everybody who has an interest in uh, a countervailing point of view that's something that's, you know, against the establishment or whatever, I get it in the mail as possible things to, to use in the magazine. That's why we call you the titan of parapolitics here. I mean, <laughs> this guy's shaped the field, folks, and, uh, you know, that's why I'm excited to have him on the program. Well, bless you. Ah, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but the story doesn't end there. Okay, let's keep going. This is at this point that I actually joined a conspiracy with a, a, a transnational corporation. I had a friend who was working uh, – I wonder if I could even use names. Why not? Uh, who was working at Monsanto here locally, yeah. Monsanto Chemical. And uh, he liked my stuff, and he allowed me access to the photocopying equipment at Monsanto after hours, which allowed the fourth issue of Steam Shovel Press to be the size of a magazine. Prior to that, it was like a half size, just a few pages, a newsletter. With this equipment, I could produce a magazine and could produce many, many more copies. So with issue number four, I had an actual magazine, and uh, I began this big effort to find out how to get it distributed and developed a network of about a dozen different distributors around the country that put it out on newsstands. And it was from there that it started making enough money to pay for itself. And uh, I, I no longer needed Monsanto after that. With issue five, it went to newsprint, and issue five on, it became a regular magazine uh, that was kind of self, self-generating, paying for itself. And uh, it was kind of working me to death because I was like filling the orders, uh, shipping it off to the distributors, yeah. doing all the editorial work and all the writing that went along with it and all that kind of stuff. But it was uh, it was fun and an interesting thing to do. I'm glad it, it it's carrying on in one form or another. All those distributors aren't around anymore, uh, but uh, uh, you know, Steam Shovel still 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 there. And you know, it's it's never replaced Time or Newsweek, but it survives. You know, which is more than most of the zines that were coming out at that time can say. Absolutely, yeah. If you can manage to survive the end of the zine era, then yeah, I think you're yeah. in good shape. Yeah, well, you know, there were, there were a lot of them at that time. Flatland oh, yeah. was, was a big one. Jim Martin's Flatland. Greg Bishop used to do the excluded middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, in fact, I've made this case before that I believe that The Lone Gunman, which was an offshoot program of the X-Files, do you yep. remember? It was a comedy show. Yep. I believe those guys were based on us, uh, on me, Greg, and Jim. Three really? guys. Yeah, three guys trying to put a conspiracy magazine out. And, in fact, if you look at the first episode of The Lone Gunman, that's that's kind of famous in conspiracy circles because it, it was a, it was in the March before 9/11, mm-hmm. but it, it's an episode where they have a plane going into the trade towers that is stopped at the last minute by 
a promise software and a promise software, a promise type software, extrapolation software, and that is it comes right out of the book The Octopus that yep. I co-wrote with Jim Keith. So it all comes around. Yeah. So somebody asked me the other day, you know, do you think that conspiracy stuff since that time has conspiracy stuff been mainstreamed? And um, uh, I'm not quite sure how to answer that. There's certainly, you know, a lot more interest in, in it in the popular culture. But the, the extent to which it is, I think, is the extent to which we were successful back there in the 90s. The three of us all kind of self-consciously trying to bring this stuff, which, uh, you know, kind of per- that's always been percolating under the culture, into the conscious mind of the popular culture, you know? Yeah. Well, that actually brings me to one of the sort of like big things I wanted to ask you because you have such an invaluable perspective on this kind of thing. I sort of watched the whole esoteric scene from a little bit outside the bubble and have a really deep interest sort of in the sociological aspect and the personalities of the field and stuff like that as opposed to, to sightings of you know UFO reports and, right. and stuff like that. So you've been in this for like a super long time, obviously. What do you... Not necessarily with regards to the conspiracy, but what do you think of how the 9-11 truth movement sort of evolved? Because it's kind of a rare situation in the sense that we get <laughs> – he's already laughing, folks. <laughs> it's like a rare situation where we can kind of see like the birth of a whole new realm of conspiracy theory and watch it develop. It's like its own little Petri dish of esoterica in a way. And I know that obviously, like I said, you've been around for a long time. You – were, you know, you way predate the 9-11 truth movement. So it's right, like, right. I mean, what was your perspective as this whole thing unfolded? Well, it's amazing, really, yeah. Uh, when you think of the uh, JFK research movement, it actually took uh, four to five years before there really was a movement. Since the since November 11, 1963, when JFK shot, got shot and killed, until the publication of Mark Lane's book in '66 before a, a movement be, started to begin to question the Warren Commission and all that stuff. Yeah. When 9-11 happened, I mean, the very day, the very night, there were like thousands of websites devoted <laughs> to conspiracy theories about it, you know, which is a, kind of a, a testament, I guess, to how fast communications go now as opposed to uh, the mid-60s, but also how quickly people are to uh, – uh, say that whatever explanation is being put forth, it's not the right one, and we have to think for ourselves and come to our own conclusions about it. So it was a much faster thing, a broader thing, um, uh, and, and pretty amazing in, in that regard. Although, you know, I've had trouble with those people. Of, I was almost lynched once at a talk where I, when I expressed my opinion that I do indeed believe there was a plane that hit the Pentagon <laughs> uh, and things like that. What I also find kind of interesting is just how, like, somebody like Alex Jones went from a radio host. You could say he was kind of a star at the time, you know, an emerging superstar, and now he's sort of like, you know, one of the hugest players in the whole esoteric field, just in in general. I mean, the guy gets a lot of critical and key, massive interviews and a lot of mainstream attention. It's like it is very interesting. Uh, You know, he's. You ever see that movie, The Waking Life? I have it on DVD, but I don't think I've ever watched it. Alex Jones is in that. Yeah, I heard. He's probably yeah, like the guy who made it, I guess. Yeah, uh, Linklater is the guy who made it. And, mm-hmm. you, and, you, and, and basically, it's, it's esoteric in that it's, it's primarily based on Guy Debord and the Situationists, um, and, and which is kind of where I'm coming from, too. My, my whole idea about uh, the conspiracy culture is that it's this huge spectacle that needs to be decoded that way. And in that movie, you see Alex Jones just kind of driving around with his megaphone. That's my image of Alex Jones. 
nowadays you kind of see him. I saw him recently on Jesse Ventura's show. Have you seen that? Yeah, I've seen some of it. Conspiracy theory. Yeah, he, he's he's on there, kind of giving, you know, the secrets uh, to Jesse Ventura, which is kind of sad, I think, you know, because I I think uh, Alex Jones is probably a more authentic uh, personality when it comes to this stuff than uh, than Jesse Ventura is. I think Ventura's show is just another one of those. Uh, Let's wrap the laughter curtain around uh, these topics. Okay, see, because I haven't watched enough of the Jesse Ventura show to really have a solid opinion on it yet. But what I saw of the previews and some of the stuff I saw, I kind of liked it. But you think there's a giggle factor, sort of, a, just because it's him and he's associated with it? And yeah, pretty much. I think Ventura is kind of presented as, I don't know, maybe it is because I've been into this so long that, that, that I see these things more than others. But he seems so naive and so gullible and so um, uh, wow you know there's a, a harbor ray up in alaska what's that about and also um, he announced ventura announced when uh, the show first came on that he wasn't going to deal with any conspiracies that were older than 10 years yeah so that's why you're not going to see jfk being discussed there oh my god how long has harp been around and he's talking to uh mind control people and people uh, uh, I, I think the Alex Jones one involved uh, the Bilderbergers yeah well, we've all been studying these things for decades now you know Jesse Ventura is not the first person to come along and this idea and he's got this big macho personality and he wants to come on the scene and he's gonna you know nobody's gonna push him around and he's gonna get to the truth of things and none of those shows do any of that he doesn't he doesn't get any further uh, into it than than, than anybody else uh, so I even uh, uh, distributed, tried to distribute, uh, it got ignored, but uh, a challenge to a SmackDown with Jesse Ventura. <laughs> I said, bring it on, buddy. You want to talk conspiracy? Put me on your show. <laughs> well, maybe there'll be a second season. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we had him on our show. We asked him about the doing the UFO stuff, and he, he said he didn't feel like he had anything to offer to the UFO conspiracy, which is sort of like... Oh, my God. Yeah, but that that sort of raises another issue that I want to ask you about, just because uh, you do look at the UFO issue as well as all these conspiracies, and there's a whole sort of like contingent or orthodoxy of conspiracy that doesn't want to mix the two, you know, never the twain shall meet. But then there's other people like Jim Mars and, and even Rich Dolan, who's primarily a UFO researcher, but he looks at the 9-11 thing. So at least there's some crossover, which I can appreciate. Well, Mars wrote a book called Alien Agenda. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. You know, you know, uh, uh, there's clearly a cover-up going on there. You know, uh, so a cover-up is a conspiracy. So, I mean, the it's intricately connected. You can't talk about UFOs without discussing how they've been trying to distort and cover up what the actual information is uh, over the years. You don't even have to believe in UFOs. In fact, I, I make the case. You know, I'm absolutely certain of the existence of MJ-12, for instance. You know MJ-12, right? Yeah. yeah, a lot of people just dismiss it. It's all part of that Roswell crap, that's faked uh, MJ-12 documents and all this other stuff. But I can demonstrate to you why one document called the Cutler-Twining Memo cannot be faked. And so that means MJ-12 existed. But that doesn't mean that there are UFOs or that there are aliens. It could just mean that there's a whole bunch of government people who think there are, and they created this committee to try to, try to deal with it, all that kind of stuff. So... Uh, one way or another, the whole body of, of knowledge that we have about UFOs can tell us a lot about, um, you know, there's talk about how they uh, infiltrate the UFO conferences, you know, they send yeah. people out, and, and that makes sense, because what is a UFO conference? You know, it's people coming together, uh, thinking critically about advanced aerial weaponry, you know? So, yeah. of course, we're going to have people out there 
trying to understand what they know. Exactly. Understand. Yeah. So, so I don't see how you can, you know, you, you can't really be a conspiracy researcher and say, oh, I'm just into, you know, assassinations and coup d'etat. I, I don't want to pay attention to UFOs. Yeah, it's unfortunate that a lot of people do, but, you know, there has to be some kind of connection to the two. Like you said, whether it's, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be that the UFOs are real or there's aliens or anything else. It might just yeah. be something completely different. It's at the very least a sociological phenomenon that uh, reflects how government tries to uh, uh, manipulate the way its citizens uh, think and, and behave and, and what they know and what they don't know. Uh, let me jump back a little bit because Greg shared this story. I talked to Greg Bishop last night for a while, and uh, obviously you and him are good buddies. And I told him I was interviewing you today, so he gave me some tips and stuff. And uh, <laughs> he mentioned one story that I'd never heard before involving you. And this jumps back to the whole 9-11 thing. Um, that's that you went down to the Pentagon, you went to D.C., and, and you went around and talked to, you know, the various businesses and, and people who were around the area to find out if they saw a plane. And the answers were resoundingly similar. And I'll leave it at that and, and maybe you can yeah. sort of share the story because I'd never heard it before. Yeah, well, that's absolutely true. And actually, this is something that I did with Len Bracken, who is a conspiracy writer. He wrote... Uh, the Secret Government, which is which is a compilation of the conspiracy trails uh, as they were happening. It's one of the earliest 9/11 books. Yeah. And uh, uh, he wrote that, and he wrote The Arch Conspirator, and Glenn's just a great writer. And I was with uh, John Judge, who is a famous uh, disciple of May Russell, who's the head of the Coalition on Political Assassinations in D.C. And I visit them on occasion out there. And on this occasion, we went to specifically we went to this hotel. I wish I could remember its name now, but it's right across from the Pentagon. And uh, it's right there near that Sitco station. You know, there are a series of, of single images yep. that show a plane crashing into uh, the Pentagon, and even show the American Airlines logo if you blow it up enough. We talked to every one of these people, and you know, some of them were just Latino, Spanish-speaking people. And fortunately, Len uh, speaks Spanish, and he talked to them all. And to a person, they all saw the plane. Every one of them saw the plane. But also, they all said that uh, the FBI came by later and confiscated all of the security footage in the hotel. <laughs> so what's that all about? You know, I mean, uh, if if it's a, and, and the only thing we have again are those Sitco station images. When in fact we have a hotel full of. Uh, security cams on every floor, uh, you know, uh, that that should demonstrate, you know, that there was a plane. So if they wanted to, if they wanted to kill that part of the 9/11 truth movement, they would just release that. So, you know, what conclusion can you reach from that? They don't want to kill it. And in fact, you know, I, last year I was in Liverpool and somebody gave me a, a DVD of something called the Hutchison Effect, which is basically kind of arguing that. 9/11 didn't happen at all. That it was all holograms. <laughs> and there is a ridiculous aspect to the 9/11 movement, and um, it's kind of like Bill Cooper and the uh, the driver did it theory of the Kennedy assassination. Yeah, where you know, introduce some elements. Certainly, there's a lot of conspiracy attached to 9/11 that needs to be discussed. But then you introduce some of these crazy elements, and it discredits the entire discussion. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's what I think is going on there, and that's why I always have to insist with crowds. No matter how much they hate it, a plane hit the Pentagon. You know. Then to speculate a little bit, what do you think the reason is why they don't want to kill the the story? Are they trying to sort of plant the seeds for civil unrest or suspicion well, of the government or like something? Like I said, they want to inject these crazy elements to it to discredit it. You know, they 
they, they want people to be talking about all kinds of ridiculous things so they can keep the focus off of what's actually going on there. That's that's my feeling of it. And, you know, and it happens all the time. I mean, there are different ways of, of dealing with critical thought and dissent, and one of them is you just go out and kill people who do it, and that's done. Uh, and I think actually part of the protection I've had over the years is that uh, you know, steam shovel press. What does that mean? It's humorous, right? It's it's actually a reference to a Dylan song. Uh, and I've always put elements of humor in what I do, uh, not wrapping myself, but also with you know a respect for the points of view I'm trying to get across, but also you know trying to make it not if not funny, but at least comfortable. Yeah. You know? Yeah. At least a, a a kind of atmosphere where you you can talk about it and not. Uh, feel uh, so terribly oppressed. So what they try to, but you know, every the laughter curtain. You know, you can't get on the major media and discuss a conspiracy without somebody going, yeah, yeah, look at that crazy guy. Uh, you know, other than making it seem silly or um, or, or just plain wrong. You know, the, the media constantly falls down on the side of. The authorities, whatever the authorities say, yeah. the authorities cannot be right all of the time. It's just not logical. So, yeah, that's what I think is going on there. Okay, interesting. Now, what about obviously you've been following the UFO scene for a long time. Now, what do you think of this whole emergence in the last ten years of exopolitics and sort of a renewed push for disclosure? You know, by way of hassling the government <laughs> and, and, and insisting that they know and they must tell us immediately or we're going to fax them three million times or something. <laughs> well, good luck. <laughs> who's, who's the guy, the main guy, Steve? Steve Bassett or Steve, Steve Greer? There's Steve two different Bassett. Steves. No, Steve Bassett. He was in, in Vegas the last time I was speaking there. and he is He's a very funny guy and a very high-energy guy, too. Yeah. A uh, very interesting personality in and of itself. I'm surprised that you know he doesn't just march into the White House and uh, – uh, to demand that they can walk away with the files. But I kind of feel that way uh, like I feel about the legalization of marijuana. Who cares? Who cares what the government tells you to do uh, or what it what it says or what it holds or whatever? I mean, we, we've got uh, half a century of information and files and uh, groups like MUFON and, and books and, and authors and stuff. We know what's going on. I mean, a disclosure would be redundant at this point, as far as I'm concerned, you know. Um, so, I mean, it'd be nice. It'd be nice to have the imprimatur of uh, the government, but uh, it's certainly not necessary for further understanding of, of what's actually happening, I don't think. And uh, I don't know, it's kind of like, you know, when they sent Columbus out to find America, they knew that the Earth was... was was round. <laughs> they didn't want to tell anybody because they didn't want their enemies sneaking up from behind. So, you know, whatever's going on with the UFO thing, they, they don't want to uh, make a full disclosure of that because uh, they're kind of trying to busy preparing for what it actually all really means. What do you think it all means? I mean, if we're really going to get down to brass tacks, what do you think is going on here with this UFO phenomenon? Well, it's a multivariate phenomenon. Yeah, um, yeah, I think we can agree on that. Yeah, and uh, it's uh, it's partly uh, ships, partly you know spaceships with alien beings in them. It's partly uh, kind of a perceptual thing when you uh, read the accounts of the abductees. It all sounds like they're on LSD or something. Yeah, you know, so there's a there's a kind of a consciousness element to it too. And I don't know, I just. Uh, 
don't know, did you get that essay I sent about the Gerald Hurd lecture that I went to? Yes, yes, I yeah. did. Yeah, and uh, he was making a really uh, good point about how uh, many of them are just observers. Of course, he's talking 1950, and he's talking about how flying saucers are like 35,000 feet, and they're standing still, and they're over atomic sites. And they're on the ground, they're making uh, uh, Geiger counters uh, uh, shoot double what they ordinarily measure. Yeah. And, and, you know, all of that suggests so much about, you know, how they can control radioactivity and so forth. So, um, uh, you know, observation, I think, is a big thing. And, and kind of an interaction with whatever intelligence there is down here. Okay. Uh, between that and whatever it is that's... Uh, that's driving. It's, it's hard to make a generality. It's, it's yeah. easier to talk about data in specific cases. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, and that's, and that's that exactly there. what Gerald Hurd says. By the end of the, the, the talk, it's, it's exactly what he says. He's talking about how difficult it is. I, I just heard an alien voice, actually. Did you get that? No, I didn't hear anything. I heard some radio interference. But he said it's very difficult. Whoa. Did I you heard, hear that? I heard it that time. Do, 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 that's do, weird, do. dude. Ah, yeah, wow. That sounds like a cry for help. Yeah. Uh, God. <laughs> Whoever they've tasked with listening into our phone call is being kind of beaten. Spooked. Yeah. Maybe that was uh, from one of those operating tables where the aliens are probing some guy and he's yelling out. Or maybe they're trying to shout me down because I'm saying too much here. But Gerald Hurd's point, though, was that it's a very difficult thing to simply collect the data and let it sit there without trying to cubbyhole it or stick it into some analytical framework. Uh, because it is still a really new phenomenon, and it's polluted with a lot of hoaxing and a lot of faking and a lot of government interference. Uh, but um, the job is knowledge. You know, all, that's, that's how he ends his lecture. All we want is knowledge. And he's, he's urging people to file their reports to the Air Force uh, or to send them to him. He even gets his post office box out in L.A. Uh, so that uh, we can just accumulate data. So it's been going on forever, same same style of <laughs> send me your UFO reports and we'll put it in the file cabinet. Yeah, well, I mean, it's all it's actually all kind of changed now. No, no, uh, MUFON still exists, but uh, the Air Force doesn't collect no, yeah. information anymore. They've collected as much as they think they can get out of it. And, you know, this is before the abductee phenomenon and before, uh, well, this is 1950. You know, Gerald Hurd wrote maybe the first book on flying saucers. And in fact, that's that's why I was there. You know, I, I've got uh, this book uh, that I'm working on an update. My my old, my old book that came out in 96 called Maury Island UFO, mm -hmm. which is about guys who saw this UFO event in uh, 47 who were subpoenaed in 68 by Jim Garrison as part of the Kennedy assassination yeah. investigation. And Gerald Hurd wrote this book in 1950 that had a whole chapter on Maury Island that and it was called the riddle of the flying saucers when it came out in america it was called is another world watching and the chapter's gone it's taken out it's not in there and uh so i've been poking around trying to see why that is and just by weird serendipity there was a tape of gerald Hurd right down the street from where i live and uh, i had to jump through hoops to get them to let me listen to it but it was right from that period of time and i was hoping you know maybe he would say something about the case why that chapter isn't in the book didn't get any of that, <laughs> but I had a great time listening to the tape. And actually, in the tape, he clarified kind of a, uh, the uh, philosophical stopping points of even uh, the most advanced thinking people in this story about Galileo. 
Yeah. You know about Galileo and the yeah. clerics, yeah. Galileo had these clerics come over to look through the telescope to see the moons of Jupiter, which anybody can see. Anybody can see it now. But these clerics couldn't see it because they believed that the Earth was the center of the universe, you know, and there couldn't be anything orbiting anything else. They couldn't see it because it, because of their paradigm. That's a story actually that's told very well by Arthur Kessler in, uh, in a great book called The Sleepwalkers, and he applies it to the UFO uh, situation. You know, But Heard took it a step further, and he pointed out that Galileo had also looked at Saturn. And at the time, you couldn't see the rings of Saturn. They kind of looked like little teacup handles on either side of Saturn sometimes. Mm-hmm. But when the orbit changed, you couldn't see them at all. And uh, they named Saturn after this ancient myth that involved Saturn, the god, eating his children. And Galileo made a note. Saturn eats his children. And from that point on, he never studied Saturn at all again because he felt, heard, interpreted, that he felt these ancients who had written this mythology know more about the skies than he does. And he didn't want to face that. He wouldn't look at it. And he could have discovered the rings of Saturn, you know, along with the <laughs> but he wouldn't. So he had the clerics who couldn't and the great scientists who wouldn't. You know, and and all of that to me says everything about why there's a lot of people out there that don't see UFOs and don't understand that this is the yeah. object of serious concern. Yeah, that's interesting. This is a lot about human nature and everything mm-hmm. else. I mean, that's yeah. some deep stuff. Mm-hmm. What about the famous story in uh, ufological lore about the alien landing and meeting with uh, Eisenhower and stuff like that? Have you ever looked into that whole thing? Because I could have—I know I read some stuff from you. Uh, yes, yes. Well, actually, my well, thank you, Tim. It gives me an opportunity to plug my current book, <laughs> <laughs> Secret and Suppressed Two, uh, from Feral House, F-E-R-A-L. H O U S E. You can. There are uh, the, the photo section is actually I think still on their website if you want to go see this. But my chapter in there has to do with this Eisenhower and the aliens. Yeah. And and in fact also uh, at the end of March I will be speaking at a conference. The title of which escapes me, but it's in Aztec, New Mexico. Okay. And uh, I will be speaking on this topic um, based on the essay that I have on. Uh, on it in Secret and Suppressed, which I might add is actually an anthology of a lot of different conspiracy issues. So people who want to get a, uh, a broader view of everything. It's not just about this Eisenhower thing. Mine is just one essay of uh, dozens actually in there. Um, and uh, I chose to do this Aztec New Mexico thing because one of the other speakers there apparently did an oral history project with people who were on Air Force One at the time, Eisenhower supposedly met with aliens. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, in other words, at a time when he officially went to the dentist. Um, Interesting. Yeah. And uh, there's all kinds of reasons not to uh, believe he went to the dentist, one of which is he's got there's a photo from the next day with a big grin, you know, on his face. <laughs> Nothing wrong with his teeth. And, uh, you know, and there, there's this whole lore that he went and he met with these intergalactic ambassadors, you know, and there's a witness to it. And um, uh, I, I go on about that. And I connected up then to Wilhelm Reich, who was uh, – uh, he went out to the deserts in Tucson and was fighting UFOs with his Oregon equipment and uh, reporting, dutifully reporting all of his UFO encounters uh, to the Air Force. Oh, wow. And, in fact, there's, an, there's another part in Eisenhower's schedule where he goes to Rangeley, Maine, which is where uh, Reich had his laboratory, and it's still the, the home of the Reich Museum. Yeah. And there's a witness from that 
that time saying that Eisenhower and Reich met. So there's, you know, there's a meeting with Reich and aliens, or there's a meeting with Ike and aliens, a meeting with Ike and Reich, and then there's Reich having a war with aliens out in Tucson. Wow. Yeah. So I'll let people go get the book and <laughs> uh, read the details and uh, invite anybody who's around in that area who wants to come out to, uh, to discuss it uh, further. Absolutely, yeah. Oh. Interesting, yeah. Oh. So you're essentially saying that there's more credence to that story than maybe is being given to it by people who dismiss it easily? I think the question is, if this is not real, then why does the historic record make it look like it is? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because this dovetails into what I was saying before about the MJ-12 documents. The one, the Cutler-Twining memo, which is a memo between uh, Robert Cutler and uh, Nathan Twining. Robert Cutler is a guy who uh, who did um, – he, he was a high-ranking uh, Eisenhower uh, administration official who wrote, for instance, the Adams for Peace speech. Adams for Peace was a phrase that he took from Reich. Uh, and um, the Cutler-Twining memo is there. I've held it in my hands. It's there in the National Archives in D.C., and it's on Onyitskin paper, and everything tests out right. Many years after its discovery, uh, Jim Martin, who used to do Flatland, was uh, writing a biography of Reich, and he discovered the archives of another Eisenhower uh, administration guy, a part of the kitchen cabinet, a guy named Lou Douglas in Tucson many years later. And he found a memo in which, uh, you know, Reich uh, and his assistants have been trying to contact the government, trying to, you know, telling them what they're doing with UFOs. And finally, uh, one of his assistants, a guy named Moise, gets a meeting uh, with somebody in Lou Douglas's office. And the dates on that match exactly the dates in the Cutler-Twining memo. The Cutler-Twining memo is talking about a postponement of a special studies subgroup of MJ-12. And they have to postpone it when you look at these documents because they've got this meeting with Reich. Interesting. Yeah, and and so the, the, the idea that, you know, somebody could have faked up the Cutler-Twining memo and snuck it into the National Archives, you know, I'll, I'll grant you that. Somebody could have done that. But nobody could have simultaneously... Uh, or at some other point, snuck something into the Lou Douglas archives that nobody ever expected to, to, to be opened, only to be found by somebody who's doing a biography of Reich many years later and find something that, that matches so neatly. It's uh, what I call a triangulation of research, you know, kind of like the triangulation of fire during the Kennedy assassination. Yeah, yeah. These things match up so perfectly that uh, you, you, you just don't have more, uh, more uh, positive proof of something in, in the study of history. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Well, that kind of raises an issue that I was talking about with Peter Robbins a few weeks ago, and it's just that, you know, we're talking about all these dudes from, like, the 40s and the 50s and everything, and it makes you kind of wonder, like, what became of all this UFO information in the ensuing 50 years? Because we're talking, like, two generations of people and politicians and army people <laughs> and everybody else. It's like, I'm wondering if it's almost become so degraded in a way, kind of like how, you know, they say, you know, the ancients had all these secrets and everything, and you wonder if the contemporary Freemasons know any, you know what I mean, if they know anything right. of what the original secrets were. It's like, I'm wondering now if the UFO information has become so dispersed and everything that there is no place you could even go for disclosure. Because the government doesn't know, maybe some corporations might know, but even then it's yeah. like they they have stuff in their files and crap that the president of the corporation from like 1950 got his hands on from the army so they're just like we don't know where you know 
We have right. no idea where that came from because that guy died like in 1982. Yeah, same thing with presidents too. I mean, what does any given president know? You know, they all, they they, get, they might get briefings, but uh, uh, it, it's like anything else. You remember um, for the longest time uh, there was a, a big complaint out there that certain files of the JFK assassination were sealed until like 2036. Yeah. And uh, then Oliver Stone's movie came out in the early 90s, and the Assassination Materials Review Board was opened, and uh, they reviewed a lot of that stuff, and they released a lot of it, but they didn't release it all. And so here, you know, we're 40 years on in the study of the Kennedy assassination, and we're still kind of pursuing files. Uh, now, the UFO situation is even farther behind than that. Uh, you, you know, I just got to hope that there are files out there that eventually they'll be recovered and reviewed by dispassionate scholars, and we'll know more than we know now. You know, it's different than an oral tradition that the Freemasons might have been handing down yeah. to ancient Egypt. You know, so there's hope that there might still be some information out there. I think so, just because of the bureaucratic nature of of uh, our government. You got to hope, you know, that somebody stashed something away. I did, you know, the final answer of anything. I, you know. What is the answer? The answer is is, is, is multi-leveled, uh, and it involves a lot of things, and the only way you can get to it is teams of people, hundreds of people, researching and studying documents for decades and decades. <laughs> <laughs> and slowly you accrue knowledge, and you, know, you don't find the one smoking gun thing. You find a lot of really small ones, and uh, they open your mind to a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, but you know, looking for one single answer or one moment when the full disclosure is going to come, or uh, anything like that, is probably not the way to go. Yeah. yeah. One of the guys who writes for my website, Richard Thomas, he writes, uh, "No relation to you, I presume." You never know. Uh, he, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, my relatives, right? What's that? You know, I've got a famous relative. Well, he's Welsh. So do you have any yeah. Welsh blood in you? Of course, Thomas. Okay, well then maybe there is some kind of relation. Okay. Um, this, guy, this guy's currently in Wales? Yes. Okay. I told him I was interviewing you. He's a huge parapolitical enthusiast, so I asked him uh, what you know if there's anything I, I, he wanted me to ask you, so I'll make sure I take care of that now. He wanted to know what you thought the connection might be between the British royals and the New World Order global conspiracy type situation. They're all shape-shifting reptiles. <laughs> we know that. <laughs> uh, the British royals. Uh, well, which particular ones? I suppose There's an argument about the reptiles. Of course, that's David Icke, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I always thought that was an insult to reptiles. <laughs> you get that down to it. Uh, but they're power brokers, sure. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I certainly the uh, Princess Diana's death, for instance, is a very suspicious thing and probably orchestrated by members of the royals. Uh, supposedly, they're much more symbolic than uh, than our chief executive, but um, uh, you know, I'm sure they play an important part in secret power brokering, which is what I guess you call the the New World Order. Yeah. Well, I always kind of look at the New World Order as sort of like just all these different sort of factions, and they're not necessarily even on the same page. And I guess you could count the royals among them, the Vatican. Yeah. Um, corporations nowadays. Transnational corporations. The whole idea of the octopus, you know, Danny Casalero's conception of things was that it's a, it's a huge transnational uh, corporate power block. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I always have a hard time with sort of like the really extreme conspiracy ideas of people who were like, you know, put all the 
all the eggs into the the basket of the Jewish people the or the Americans or the Russians. You know what I mean? It's the like Rothschilds, the Rockefellers. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, certainly is a, a great deal of very ignorant religious prejudice that tries to pass itself off as conspiracy theory, and I hate that and I condemn it at every uh, opportunity. Uh, but then on the other hand, uh, uh, before the rise of the transnational bureaucratic uh, conspiracy, power did kind of flow out of certain families. You know? yeah. And in fact, I understand China, which is supposedly a communist country, is actually still ruled by these old feudal families. And so uh, a lot of that still goes on. You know? It's still a competition, I think, between old-time family wealth and uh, uh, the kind of transnational corporate wealth. Sometimes they they're allied, sometimes they're opposed. And that's the whole point of political study, to try to figure out what those factions are and what they what they mean to, to us. Exactly, yeah. So that's kind of almost makes me less concerned in a way, in a long-term basis, about this you know, New World Order type situation. Because I have a hard time maybe believing that they could all even get on the same page in the first place. <laughs> that's what they want you to think, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, but you know, you see, like the Bush family, for instance, you see the the influence there. Oh, you know what? J.D. Salinger died, and I saw very few people pointing out uh, the fact that uh, uh, a copy of the Catcher in the Rye was found in uh, Hinckley's hotel room, and that Mark David Chapman sat down and started reading the same book when he could have very easily escaped after having murdered uh, John Lennon. Yeah. And of course, Hinckley is connected to the Bush family. Right? His parents had dinner uh, uh, with, uh, with the Bushes uh, the night before, and there's every suggestion that there's some kind of Manchurian candidate control going on there. But George Bush, you know, there was a, at the assassination, the Kennedy assassination, there was a memo uh, sent out to, to George Bush. And, you know, when he wasn't the head of the CIA, he was the powerful vice president behind the Reagan presidency. Then he was the president, and then his son was the president. And this is an enormous amount of uh, of, of power in the hands of a family. Um, you know, I mean, you, I guess you could say the same thing for the Kennedys, but uh, you do see it there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Prescott Bush, you know, was actually censured by Congress for uh, his business dealings with the Nazis. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I mean, they've been mixed up in all this stuff for like – you know, almost a century or whatever. What about the JFK assassination? Do you think it's sort of like – I know you said there's these files that will come out eventually, but is it the kind of thing that we're never really going to get any resolution to? Uh, I know it kind of – based on your answer to like the – based on like what we've been talking about here with the UFOs and stuff, you know, your perspective probably is that we'll just get a whole bunch of little pieces and that will sort of give us an idea. But do you it, think – Inch our knowledge forward. Yeah. Well, I think it's very – uh very interesting that those few documents that are still uh, being held up from disclosure involve uh, the anti-Castro Cubans uh, in Florida that Fred Crisman was mixed up with. And yeah. Crisman, of course, is the main character in the Maury Island case. He was the guy that Jim Garrison felt was the grassy knoll shooter. And uh, so all these other documents have been released, but this stuff, which the CIA is still arguing, there's a Washington Post reporter forget his name now, but he's uh, he's still he's suing the CIA, and they're still saying that this handful of, of documents, uh, maybe 200 documents, uh, it, it would it would be a threat to national security to release them. You know, they don't say why. I mean, how old is this case now? And they all involve a, a, a milieu that Fred Crisman was involved in. So, in terms of my personal research, 
I'm anxious to, to find that out. I, I have a very strong feeling that Chrisman was a grassy knoll shooter, just like Garrison said. So when those come out, you know, maybe we'll know that. But, you know, what are we going to do? Chrisman's been dead since 75. We can't prosecute him. Exactly, <laughs> I mean, yeah. A certain amount of personal satisfaction to prove, you know, one's theories. But, you know, by that time, uh, you know, Obama might have been assassinated. You know, there's uh, like a 600 percent increase in threats against assassination threats against uh, the president now. And, and of course, he's a president who fits the profile of Kennedy, of JFK, of Robert Kennedy, of every moderately progressive political leader in the history of modern America. They all get shot and killed. Yeah, well, there does seem to be this sort of like frenzy being whipped up by the people who are against him that is bordering on like creepy. Let's just go that far. <laughs> oh my God! Yeah, the Tea Party people are meeting this weekend. Yeah, and the whole yeah, birth but... certificate thing. It's like give it up. Like, yeah, I they're mean, not gonna fucking remove him from office, dude. And and we got kind of I got some flack a couple years ago or a year ago or so for talking politics on the show, and my attitude has changed a little bit about Obama and everything. So I'm kind of disappointed with how the first year has gone. Uh-huh. But you know, looking at the way. The media has shaped the whole thing in the last year. It's just like – seems like it's just piling on this guy. I agree totally. I am a big Barack Obama fan. I think he is probably uh, – he's the only president – outside of JFK, he's the only president I've ever voted for. Every other one I voted <laughs> against the other guy, right? And uh, you know, I got Rob, Rob Sterling of the Conformist magazine. You ever heard of him on your show? Uh, no, not yet. You should. I recommend him. But he, you know, he and John Judge both have told me, uh, well, Barack Obama's just the new black face of fascism in this country." And I'm like, you know, I'm like, they've got some ideal of what they think the president should be like. Mm-hmm. But in the real world of the options that we've ever had as a president, uh, if Barack Obama doesn't look any different to you than George W. Bush, then you're not thinking right. And yeah, it's been a struggle. This last year has been a struggle, but uh, uh, he's done amazing things. And then some of them have been like um, unintended consequences, like the, like the speech in Cairo, where oh, yeah. he supposedly was offering an olive branch to, to the Muslims. I think that was misguided. You know, I think you can't deal with those people, and they're not going to take the bait, and they didn't. But what happened shortly thereafter? He he owned up. He manned up to the Mossadegh overthrow. That caused the Iranian Revolution, and and just because he did that, by June twelfth, when they had that friggin' phony election in Iran, all of a sudden there were riots in the streets. You know, they were doing in Iran what the people in in America were doing in Vietnam. You know, and they still have that. They have this whole dissent movement that's growing, uh, and it's all kind of a consequence of the fact that, you know, it, it's not. Uh, Ahmadinejad saying, okay, uh, all right, Obama wants to talk, let's talk, because he doesn't. You know, uh, Ahmadinejad has actually threatened, I don't know if you know this, Mr. Magazine, he's threatened February 11th. Ahmadinejad said he's going to teach the, the arrogant global powers a lesson. I heard so, something like that yeah, the other day. February yeah. 11th, the same day that Bob Dylan plays the White House. <laughs> I didn't know Bob Dylan was playing the White House on February yeah. 11th. They've got some special program about the music of the civil rights era, and they got Dylan. Is it going to be televised? I hope so. I know you're a huge Dylan fan. We're going to have to save our Dylan discussion towards the end of this conversation, though. Yeah. We could go – we'll end up using like half the interview time for <laughs> – Yeah, I know. Because I'm a huge Dylan fan, so. Yeah. Well, we know we're going to get the performance one way or another. If, if Iran doesn't start a global nuclear war on the 11th <laughs> when Dylan's trying to sing well, with God on our side or whatever. It does kind of tie into uh, 
the release of his album on September 11th. Uh, so ah, what's that? He did, well, one of his That's albums right. came out on September 11th. On the very day of the... Uh, Attacks. 2001, right. Yeah. Uh, that, what, was that Time Out of Mind? Uh, I think it was the follow-up. Yeah, I'm not oh. sure. I'd have to take yeah. a look. Yeah. But yeah, the album Oh, it would have been Love, Love and Theft. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. There's posters of that. It's the release day of it, too, thanks. September 11th. Interesting. Look, Todd, I know you're a big conspiracy theorist, okay? And you believe everything, man. It's not you're true. so naive, man. There are no aliens in Roswell, and contact lenses aren't made out of amoebas. They are, they too, are. dude. dude. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Hey, did you see that? What? Chupacabra. He just ran down the aisle, Todd. You better find him. Before the JFK assassination conspiracy sort of uh, got cooking and everything, was there much of a sort of like uh, conspiracy subculture in America? I mean, I can't think of too many famous pre-JFK conspiracies other than the whole Lincoln thing, and that I think didn't really even come out till like the 70s or 80s or whatever. Well, of course, conspiracies go back at least to ancient Egypt. I mean, there's always been conspiracies. Have, have there been people that have studied it and tried to expose it um, in a legitimate, non-political way. I mean, you can think of McCarthy as a guy who saw a communist That's true, yeah. behind everything. Uh, or you can think of Wilhelm Reich, who uh, was indeed railroaded into prison uh, because of a conspiracy involving uh, uh, the FDA and uh, people at the uh, uh, New Republic, uh, Michael Strait in particular, who was later exposed as a Soviet spy. And, and Reich you know, had this kind of color-coded uh, idea of of Higgs, hoodlums in government. There were red fascists and black fascists. Uh, the red ones were the communists, and the black ones were the were the ones that kind of working the hoodlums in our own government. Yeah. And and he did write about that, and he did uh, uh, you know he was he was well aware of what was going on uh, regarding his work. So you've got that going back to the fifties, and you know. Um, yeah, I think you're right. Though as a, as a just studying it as a, uh, just a person uh, interested in history who wants to know what's going on and kind of writes about it and exposes it, that's a relatively re- recent phenomenon. Yeah, like the emergence of it as an esoteric genre, if you will. Exactly. That, yeah, that is relatively recent. Although you know the whole idea of parapolitics or conspiracies uh, is just an inherent part of the way human beings organize. Yeah, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah. yeah. We kind of talked about the emergence of the 9-11 truth movement, and uh, like Greg and I were talking about it last night, and Greg always makes the point, you know, that all it would take is one more event for parapolitics really to sort of move back into the top spot of genres. Because uh, I think from 2001 to like 2006, it was like parapolitics, ghost hunting, then ufology. Oh, yeah. And now it's sort of a little <laughs> bit more... It's a little more floating. Ghost hunting is sort of like the elephant in the room. They're not, you know, they're sort of just like they'll always be near the top until these TV right. shows start folding. But right. you know, ufology started to make a comeback. Nine Eleven went down, and well, you know, all it takes is one event really for that momentum to flip back the other way. Well, we've had a couple of events. You know, we had the Fort Hood shootings, and we had the uh, Christmas. Uh, underwear bomber attempt. Yeah, yeah. So it feels uh, like maybe there is something, unfortunately, uh, like developing. Something on the level of 9/11, though. Uh, I, I don't know if we'll live to see anything like that. 
And of course, we're still involved in two wars, and everything about that has yet to surface. You know, the, uh, particularly with Afghanistan and the uh, uh, opium trade there. And you know, once people start understanding the parallels uh, between that and Vietnam, I think we'll get a different discussion about what that's all about. Particularly when you consider crossover people like uh, like Richard Armitage, who was exposed by uh, Bo Greitz as. Uh, the liaison with the drug lords in Southeast Asia, you know, famous interview with uh, with one of those drug lords, who's also had a hand in, uh, Armitage has also had a hand in the uh, Valerie Plame affair yeah. and in the development of the uh, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan wars. And somebody's making a big bundle out of this illegal uh, drug trafficking. So, uh, and that could and that could very well be a big scandal. Now, what do you think of the whole? element to parapolitics that's like involving the Bohemian Grove type stuff and almost like an occult twist to it where people seem some, you know, factions of parapolitics and conspiracy research ascribe more of an occult leaning to the power brokers. Yeah, that they get together at these secret meetings uh, and have these rituals. Yeah, all that yeah, stuff. Yeah. Well, I'm not a very religious person, and I don't really think those rituals are, are effective things in in uh, you know in, in gaining power. But uh, you know, they are a networking opportunity, and the power brokers kind of get together. And if they all believe that stuff, you know, if they all believe that their power comes from worshiping Satan. <laughs> whatever, and that gives them the impetus to go out and do what they do, I think there's there's something to it. But it's really, to me, uh, the idea that the Illuminati is actually Satan uh, or that this is a big struggle between God and Satan and all that stuff is is a kind of a pollution of <laughs> of studying it you know it's it's falling back on old religious ways of thinking that are that are just outdated and to me the idea of parapolitics i mean not everybody that studies parapolitics is a scientist but they i would expect them at least to be a kind of a secularist or a humanist or somebody who eschews uh, religious thinking of that sort i would hope they would be that way okay yeah. Now, what about the uh, the moon landing? Have you looked at the moon landing hoax concept, and uh, what do you think of that? Oh, absolutely. Um, this is actually my probably my most popular book is one called uh, NASA Nazis and JFK, mm-hmm. and uh, that's kind of a value-added edition of something called the Torbit document, uh, which was a kind of behind-the-scenes uh, 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 essay or reportage on the assassination that involved uh, – uh, Werner von Braun and Walter Dornberger and the paperclip Nazi scientists who were uh, the spoils of war after the war. We, you know, our rocket scientists. You, you know this, right? The, yeah. Our rocket scientists were, were taken from the Nazis, and our rocket program was built by former slave masters of Nordhausen and the uh, uh, the slave camps that built the V2 uh, rockets. Mm-hmm. In that book. There's a photograph of JFK and Werner von Braun discussing something uh, in, I think, September of 62. And in, in von Braun's memoirs published in Germany, he says that after that photograph was taken, they got into an argument specifically about what kind of propulsion system uh, we were going to use to send a man to the moon. Mm-hmm. So as a rocket scientist, you can assume that Werner von Braun was arguing for rockets. What was JFK arguing for? 
Uh, and so that kind of dovetails into this discussion that, you know, when you see the, uh, uh, the lunar craft leaving the surface of the moon, you don't see a blast. You don't see any blast crater. Uh, you, you know, you, there's something going on there that's, that's secret. And it better be. You know, when the space shells are going off, they used to say, and I think they still do, every once in a while they say there's a secret payload. And so the idea that there are no secrets in, the, in NASA's program is just not true. They will tell you that there are secrets. And uh, although you can certainly prove that man landed on the moon, uh, you can't, you know, there's still things to be said about how did he do it, what kind of propulsion system, how did they get through all these things, these questions that are raised, like through the Van Allen belt, the radiation of the Van Allen belt. A lot of them are very legitimate questions. Uh, so, yeah, I don't, wouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater just because it's the basic thing is not true. It's not hoax. We 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 went to the moon. There's you know they've got markers up there that transmit and show us. You know you can prove it any any time that we were there. Uh, but secret space program, something that's uh, uh, very much worthy of consideration. And of course the whole idea, getting back to the whole idea that these were Nazis that that kind of stuff. That, you know there's a great famous essay called. Uh, King Kill 33 by James uh, Shelby Downard. Oh, yeah. I'm the one that accidentally made you uh, get asked about that on Coast to Coast. So. Oh, is that right? Okay, that's right. right. We're, we're talking about that. That only appears in print. I think you can find it online now. But in print, you can only find it in the first edition of uh, Apocalypse Culture, famous book that Adam Parfrey did, not, not even in the later editions. I don't know why. But it's the idea that this was a, 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 a Masonic ritual. Um, to uh, uh, to kill the president and get yep. a man on the moon. Yeah. 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 So that's one of my favorite uh, theories and and I guess sub genres. I guess you could say the whole it's ritual really like, aspect of it. It's really like the literary basis of everything. I think that Richard Hoagland and Michael Barra and those people do. You know. Possibly. Um, yeah. When they I, talk about all the Masonic symbolism of the people that run NASA, I mean, there's a certain amount of truth. There's got to be a certain amount of truth. And I'm sure there are Masons <laughs> in NASA, and I'm sure some of them take themselves seriously. Yeah. Tell me about the gemstone files, because I have the book, but I haven't had a chance really to sit down and read it. And kind of like what I was saying earlier about just the sheer proliferation of your stuff. Like, I'm sure if I had sat down and read it, I would have taken up the whole interview to to ask you just about the gemstone files. So we'll have you back eventually in the future to sort of, you know, fine tune a lot of this stuff and really dig into each Okay. Area um, specifically, but I'm really interested in what this is all about because Howard Hughes is involved, and he's such a mysterious character that uh, right. I find it uh, fascinating. Yeah, well, the Gemstone File is uh, uh, the book that uh, David Childers and I produced on it called Inside the Gemstone File. is a compendium, really, of all of the commentary um, that was in print at that point about uh, the Gemstone File, which was a long series of letters uh written by a guy named Bruce Roberts about um artificial rubies that he had created that he felt had been shanghaied from him by Howard Hughes or the guy who replaced Howard Hughes according to Bruce Roberts when uh Aristotle Onassis had him kidnapped the whole basis of this is that Hughes was kidnapped and Aristotle Onassis who's the head of the international mob at the time uh was actually in charge of uh Hughes's enterprises that book and everything preceding it uh, kind of was, was all written without references to uh, the letters themselves because those were in private hands. But there was something called the uh, skeleton key 
to the gemstone file, which was a um, chronology of everything that Bruce Roberts had spelled out in the letters. The skeleton key was composed by a woman named Stephanie Caruana, who's who's still out there, actually still a bit of a activist in conspiracy world. She uh, was hired by Playgirl to uh, look through May Brussels' file on this, mm-hmm. and that's how she compiled the uh, the chronology in the first place. Now she has since she privately produces. Uh, I don't know the title of it, but it's on the skeleton key to the gemstone file, and you know, I encourage people to go online to find it. Uh, but it's a very thick tome, and I'm, I'm sure it reproduces some of Robert's letters, so you can get really up close and personal with this theory. Of course, after you've gone through the book that we put together to give you a kind of a broader view of it. But that's pretty much it. It's um, and, and there's even a James Bond movie that kind of gets into this a bit. But it's the idea that uh, Aristotle and Assis uh, took over Howard Hughes, um, they, 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 and, and, and how that's connected to the assassination, for instance. Um, for instance, you know, Jackie Kennedy, after the assassination, married Aristotle Onassis and gained protection for the children um, by the international mob thereafter. And of course, once she died, you started seeing the Kennedy children dying too. JFK Jr., Michael Kennedy, all these people. Yeah, weird. Anyway, yeah. I mean, there's a lot more to it than, than that quick review, but uh, that gives you the basics. Yeah. Go out and get the book, folks. Yeah. We can't Can I do say everything. one other thing about uh, Werner von Braun? Sure, go for it. Uh, I was mentioning before that you know, I'm constantly calling him the slave master of Nordhausen, he and Walter Dornberger. And um, he was a friend, actually, of my old friend Timothy Leary. And I, I never really quite understand people who, who defend him. But they were running slaves into Mutlerk's, um site, and they were developing the V-2 rockets. And actually, Gerald Hurd, who who knew uh, another guy there, was saying, we don't know how high those V numbers went, the V-3 and so forth. But the British, at one point, you know, discovered the facility and strafed the place. Killed the slaves. Yeah. Uh, so um, von Braun and Dornberger, they were slave masters. But the British, our guys, you know, our allies, were the killers of those people, and they were just—they were slaves. They were forced into it. So it's a—it's a bad situation all the way around. I don't say that in defense of, of uh, von Braun or anything, but um, no, it just shows you how shitty everybody is. Yeah, war as hell. Yeah. 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 Well, just kind of also. Leaving behind the debate about the origins of the pyramids, it just kind of is sad to think that, you know, these great human achievements from all, from all the way back to prehistory up to the moon landing were built on slave labor. Right. You right. know, it's like, Jesus, we really haven't changed much <laughs> yeah. at all. Talk a little bit about Mae Brussel because uh, obviously you're not the first person to mention her on the show but it seems like she's kind of been lost to esoteric history in a way that, you know, there's no Mae Brussel biography out there. And uh, I'm sure there's books, you know, that maybe she wrote or something that you could get your hands on. Well, she's- her archives, uh, when she died, she died in 1988. Mm-hmm. And uh, her followers, we called them Brussels sprouts, <laughs> uh, kind of fell into factions. More than two, but the two main ones were John Judges and Dave Emery's. Mm-hmm. And uh, those two guys have nothing good to say about each other. And she had an archives, and there is a maybrussels.com now somewhere. 
and they think it's a woman named Virginia McCullough who uh, lays claim to be the heir of May Russell and maybe even gives you some access. But it's all – you're right. It's all really quite unclear and no no major biography has ever been written. I think in part because Judge, John Judge moved to D.C. and he created this group, the Coalition on Political Assassinations, and he's busy putting together conferences – Every year in Dallas and in L.A. for RFK and in Memphis for uh, Martin Luther King, and, and now he's gone, gone after the Malcolm X files, and uh, he's just been busy, busy, busy carrying on the work of May Russell. In many ways, like she couldn't, you know, because he's there in the heart of Conspiracy Central in D.C., mm-hmm. and uh, she was basically a radio commentator uh, in Carmel Valley. Uh, so. Um, much needs to be done. As far as Dave Emery is concerned, I think Dave Emery is, is uh, still on the air, uh, but I think he just does a radio show. And uh, I think they dropped the ball in some ways. Uh, it's uh, in, in not, you know, because both those guys are talented enough to put, put together a biography. Uh, and you're right, it hasn't been done. There should not only be a biography, but now there should have been a biopic, you know? Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Well, what do you think it says about the. We're really jumping around all over the place here, but that's what a jam session is, folks. So just, <laughs> We're jamming. What do you think it says about the conspiracy power brokers, you know, the powers behind the whole scene, you know, the powers that be? What do you think it says about them that the 60s saw, like, all these assassinations, mm-hmm. but then, you know, as the 70s came on, it was like there weren't really, you know, I think, like, I guess there's the attempted assassination on Reagan and the Lenin assassination, but that's really it for like the last 30 years. But then prior to that, there was like those three in fairly quick succession. Well, that's a part of that is because we went into a deep conservative uh, bend there afterwards. And, and as I pointed out before, the people that get shot, Reagan, of course, is an exception. I think Bill Hicks has this whole joke about, you know, Kennedy gets shot and he dies, RFK gets shot and he dies, Reagan gets shot and he lives. You know? <laughs> uh, but... Um, yeah, uh, after the 60s, you know, the whole body politic turned uh, uh, turned very uh, conservative, and the conservative people, there's not that much uh, power behind trying to shoot and kill uh, people who are doing the bidding of uh, wealthy conservative oil barons and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's part of what's going on there. Which, which actually brings to mind again. I was, what I've been trying to get back to is my great aunt Helen Gahagan, who okay. actually ran against Richard Nixon for the state senate seat of California in 1950. Oh wow! You know that story? No. She was called the Pink Lady. Uh, he, uh, she, and in fact, if you watch uh, Oliver Stone's movie on Nixon, there's some footage of her in there. Uh, but she was the one who gave him the name Tricky Dick. Oh wow! Yeah, and uh, this is this is my. I'm not quite sure. What a relationship is to me, to tell you the truth. My middle name is Francis, and I'm named after my grandmother, Francis Gahagan, who was a cousin to Helen Gahagan. Okay. And Helen was uh, originally a movie star in the 1930s, and she one movie called She, which was done by Miriam C. Cooper, uh, shortly around the time he also did King Kong. And it's basically the same story. These explorers go out to this island somewhere, but instead of finding a big hairy ape, they find this 3,000-year-old bitch from hell. <laughs> That's my Aunt Helen. <laughs> and that was the only movie she ever did. Uh, after that, she got into politics, and she married Melvin Douglas and stuff. And I'm, I'm kind of proud of her. There was a, 
uh, Haywood Brown, the columnist, calls her 10 of the most 12 beautiful women in the country. And, and, and actually, there's this new biography now that seems to be suggesting that at one point she had an affair with Lyndon Johnson, which I find awful. And I'm, I'm actually working on a book on Johnson right now. But, you know, her campaign uh, against Nixon, you know, she lost. But JFK actually supported Nixon in that campaign. Oh, wow. Yeah, he actually gave him a thousand bucks for that campaign. So, in some ways, the Kennedy family is at odds with mine. <laughs> but they were both, that's because they were both these cold warriors. And Gahagan, though, was not communist. You know, they, they tried to smear it that way. She was part of the anti communist left, which is. To me, which is the tradition I feel as if I'm working out of. I mean, my favorite writer on earth is Arthur Kessler, uh, who, uh, uh, you know, was a communist at one time and eventually came to condemn it, wrote a book called The God They Fail, or an essay in a collection called The God That Failed. And uh, uh, Orwell is the same way. Um, And uh, that's kind of the way I feel now about uh, the international situation with regard to uh, the mad mullahs and the jihad. You know, I feel as if I'm an anti-jihadist. I'm on the anti-jihadist left. Yeah. And I find so many people who condemn what's going on with these radical Islamic people, who uh, who are basically making themselves uh, footnotes uh, to Fox News, and not really understanding that. Uh, uh, you know, the world that we want to live in is one uh, where there is uh, social progress, tolerance for other people. I mean, the left has, has had fallen into this disgu- this disgusting PC uh, attitude uh, toward everything, yeah. and uh, uh, and that's not right. But on the other hand, you you don't want to just kind of ape what these uh, you know people like Sean Hannity and Rush Limbaugh, those guys who yeah. who, who don't really believe the crazy stuff they say. They say the crazy stuff because it's part of their business model. You know, that gives them ratings and so on. And um, uh, that's where, you know, uh, I've had uh, big arguments and and a major falling out with uh, people who uh, uh, circulate, uh, one person who was circulating uh, videos by the the BNP in England that were anti-jihadist, anti-Muslim, anti-radical bombing, anti-bombers, all this stuff. But the BNP is the Nazi party in Britain. And you see other people supporting Geert Wilders, who is a right-wing politician in the Netherlands, who is also riding this tide of anti-Muslim sentiment, who, among other things, is calling for a return to the military draft. Now, I detest Iran's leadership, and I hate the jihadists, and I will, you know, condemn them and fight them with every fiber of my being. But I will not make common cause with the British nationalist Nazi party or with creeps like Geert Wilders. Yeah. You know, they, people have to understand that difference, you know. That's been a very important point of mine, and uh, uh, I've lost friends over that one. <laughs> Actually. Okay. I don't have much to say to that. I, I'm in agreement with you, so – I know, I don't. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of like a wipe everybody else out, but us sort of attitude. That's like, you know, it's a problematic on both sides, but it's, you know, on our shore, it's it's hard to fucking deal with. Cause it's yeah. like, all right, dude, obviously these people are fucking crazy and shit, but we can't even find them to kill them, much less kill them. So we got to figure out a better way to fucking solve this problem. Precisely, precisely. You know, re-educate them or whatever, you know? Like, it's going to have to come from the top down over there. So, who knows? 
you know, we almost overthrew Iran, but then Michael Jackson had to die, and no one cared anymore about that lady that died in Iran. It was like, you notice that? It well, was, yeah, but that's not over with yet in Iran. It's yeah. Not. But in, actually, the parapolitical entanglement that we have there now is that what can we do now? I mean, at some point, we're going to have to go bunker bust over there. We're going to have to have Israel or, or somebody uh, stop what they're doing. But the minute we do that, then we totally undercut the uh, movement there by um, uh, the people of Iran, who are all like most of them are, are under 30 years old. Yeah. Uh, and they want uh, secularized culture, and they want you know they, they don't they don't hate us for being who we are or whatever it is. No, they're like uh, envious of us. Yeah, but so we can't. So we can, you know we don't want to do what we have to do. Uh, we want them to do it themselves. Exactly. But it's you know but it pushes coming to shove, and that's you know. Going to be a very serious situation. Yeah. What about the Lincoln assassination? You ever looked at that? No doubt that was a conspiracy. They hung people. They convicted them of conspiracy and they hung them. Oh, like the mud guy? I don't know if they caught him or not, but I know he was kind of mixed up in all that. Well, they hung five conspirators. I mean, it's a famous photograph of them flinging the breeze. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. I'm thinking yeah about another moderately progressive political leader. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I've been kind of interested, too, lately uh, to jump off that a little bit, just in sort of how. Some esoteric mysteries end up like falling out of favor with the community, if you will. You know what I mean? Like the Amelia Earhart thing and Bermuda Triangle and spontaneous human combustion. These used to be like the big – some of the big ones of the 70s yeah, and 80s. Yeah, whatever happened to the cigar-shaped motherships. Exactly. Yeah, you don't hear about them anymore. So it's interesting that some mysteries sort of like fall out of favor with the community. But I guess there's only so far you can take stuff like Amelia Earhart. Yeah, I would like to see more done on Amelia Earhart. Uh, you know, I, I, I wish we had. Uh, you know, Steam Shovel still comes out on an extremely irregular basis. Uh, um, it would be nice to have a kind of journal like Critique used to be, you know, like a square bound thing where you had actual scholars who uh, weren't working for uh, universities or in the academic realm who actually w would dare to ask some of the crazier questions and try to find answers and, you know, on various historical topics uh, and put it out as a journal. But we are so far from that. Uh, we, we're finally constantly finding ourselves and responding to what's right in front of us. And well, that raises an interesting sort of question here, uh, especially for you. Like, do you think, you know, you you saw through this whole scene through the '90s and through the aughts and everything? Do you think things are better or worse than they were like when you first got into it? As far as like the research community goes, you know, like with the internet. It's sort of like the Wild West. I'm sure it was sort of like the Wild West back then too, but it's like now at least there had to be some sort of filtering process to get yourself into a zine or a, even if it was even a loose filtering process, there was some kind of thing. But now like anybody can be in the conspiracy scene. Do you think it's like better, worse, a uh, push, whatever? Yeah, that that much I, I don't mind. Actually, I don't mind a, a chaotic uh, uh, milieu of tons of information because I've, I've always offered – uh, the bulletin board model of, you know, just take all the information and pin up clusters of information that belong together and then maybe you can learn something. That part I don't mind. What I don't uh, like about the Internet or what I can't really uh, figure about the Internet is that it's such an energy drain for no money, you know, and these things like the magazine, anybody's writing career needs to – writers need to be able to uh, make money with what they do. And if you get up there and you're doing a blog – and you're just offering this free writing daily 
Where does the writing, where do you get the energy to find the paying markets if there are any left? What I've been doing lately is uh, trying to figure out the on-demand publishing things. And this, this might be how Steam Shovel makes a comeback. Uh, in an on-demand situation, you just create something and put it on, uh, put it into something like Cafe Press or one of these other services, and people buy it online. Yeah. And uh, uh, they're, they're buying a hard copy, but they order it on online, and then it gets made for each request. I don't know if that's going to go anywhere, but I, for the most part, anything you do online is just, is just like a one-way thing. It's a drain of people's energy, and there's, there's not really a lot of return on it. Absolutely, yeah. That's yeah. why we ask for donations at the end of every show, folks. Ken just pretty much laid it right out there for you. There you go. You know, we give this show all for free, and the return on it hasn't really <laughs> evened itself out yet, but yeah. we're I patient. Mean, where, where is it supposed to? There's no mechanism for it, you know? Uh, yeah. And I think most people's money goes uh, in terms of what they're paying for input, you know, uh, content or whatever. It mostly goes to their internet supplier or their cable television or whatever. Yeah. Uh, that's, you know, every every month somebody's paying uh, an internet connection dollar uh, to somebody else, and the content that they're looking at is mostly being given to them voluntarily by people who don't get paid, you know? Exactly, yeah. Well, it even extends just as far as just, you know, to like the newspaper industry. You know what I mean? Like that's why they're all sort of fallen by the wayside and everything now because they just started putting up all their stuff for free like five, six years ago or whatever to keep up with the Internet. And now yeah. well, years later they're like, no one's buying the newspaper anymore. It's like, yeah, you've been giving it away for the last fucking <laughs> six years. That's right. Well, Newsday just tried to sell its online edition. And they've got like 35 people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In all the world that we're going to sign up for it. Yeah, because people have asked me if I'm going to start, if I'd ever start charging for the show, and it's like, yeah, but we'd have to cut our audience down to like a quarter of what it is now. So yeah, well, I'd rather reach more people and well, eventually I'm, figure it out. I'm constantly on the prowl these days for things uh, that you can't find online uh, that I will put on a DVD. And sell for some nominal fee, you know, five dollars or ten dollars. Actually, the latest thing that I surfaced was uh, I, I got this machine now that will copy VCR to DVD, which nice. means the liberation of a whole. I got boxes of stuff, uh, you know, news shows, um, interview shows, things that were only broadcast once. Things that I can now liberate for the digital age. But uh, the other day, I just uh, did one of. Um, a time in 1992 that I was hanging out with Timothy Leary and uh, he was giving a talk in town and the night before we were at a place called the Cafe Chaos and we got to this whole discussion about chaos and information theory and, uh, and the necessity of uh, influx of, of information in order for change to happen and all this stuff. It was a fascinating little conversation and it's all on videotape right? So, uh, and you can't YouTube it <laughs> uh, or at least you can't until you know, I, I've sent it out, and I've told people, you know, if you want the Cafe Chaos tape, send me ten bucks, uh, and I'll send it out. It, you know, I I'll get maybe three of those before I do find it on YouTube. Yeah. You know, uh, the, the limiting returns there. Exactly. So, so I'm just really not sure how to do it. I mean, the, the model that I was using doing Steam Shuffle, actually printing up, you know, thousands of copies and shipping them off to distributors. Part of what happened, part of what killed the zine scene was it was a, uh, it was a famous incident. Fine Print, a, a distributor in uh, Austin, Texas, uh, went bankrupt, and they were like the major Western distributor for a lot of the zines, and we all got stiffed to the tune of thousands of dollars. Oh man! And and since that time, other 
distributed. I think ubiquity still exists up in the Northeast and uh, smaller places like Armadillo still exist in California, but it just does not make any sense anymore to uh, you know, to, to do it that way. It had already, always been a squirrely way of doing things, you know. When you'd send magazines to a distributor, you had to take their word for it about how many they sold. Exactly, yeah. 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 And uh, uh, so... So it's a, it's a tricky, tricky business. So I'm working on two book projects now um, using two different methods of POD. I'm working on a book called Wilhelm Reich, A Technology of Space, and I'm working on this Lyndon Johnson biography. But I'm also at the same time talking to the people that have always published my books and seeing if I can just do it the same old way, give me an advance and royalties. So I'm not quite sure which one's going to win out. Yeah, well, it's tough to get your stuff out there nowadays. It seems like the POD is becoming more and more popular. So Yeah. You know. Well, it's never been a field where you expect it to be enormously popular because the things that are enormously popular are the products of the transnational corporate state, you know? Yeah. Time magazine, news magazine, the television shows, all this other stuff. This esoterica by its nature only appeals to people who are interested in esoterica. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I, I don't mind that, you know. I, I, in fact, I'd, I'd rather be dialoguing with uh, people who have kind of a heightened interest than just some dumb idiot who would rather be watching American Idol. But on the other hand, it, it still has to survive. I'm very fortunate in that I have a salaried job at a university, so I don't have to make my living this way. And some of my great heroes in life, like my old writing partner Jim Keith, used to do that. I mean, he used to make, he used to pay his bills with. Uh, with what he did with his writing. Like Nick Redfern does nowadays. Like Nick, yeah. Nick's another amazing guy. But of course, you know, he's so prolific too. That's where you got to be, I guess. That's why I'm not doing too well because I'm not, <laughs> not too lazy to be prolific. <laughs> well, I, you know, I'm one of those prolific guys too once I sit down to do it, but it's got to, the math has got to add up. And, and also actually, it still remains kind of like a hobby for me because it's really – I'll never stop doing it because I'm interested in this stuff. You know, um, I, I've, I've thought of entitling my uh, autobiography, if I ever do one, uh, Strata of Data. And I really feel like I'm surrounded by, all, by a whole bunch of other information that other people can't see, won't see, uh, you know, want to deny or in denial about uh, or just – just too dumb to really understand what's really interesting about the world, about history and politics, you know? Yeah, well, yeah. it reminds me of a conversation that I think I was having with Nick about just how the UFO community and probably, I would say, almost certainly the parapolitical community kind of has like this attitude, too, in a way that because you're producing material for, quote-unquote, like the greater good, that you shouldn't be charging for it, whereas <laughs> opposed to all these other fields of endeavor is perfectly okay to charge for your books or your radio show or whatever. You know what I mean? Right, right. In in that formulation of things, the greater good means you starve to death <laughs> and uh, you can't – after a while, you can't produce what you're producing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's absurd. I don't – you know, I don't charge an enormous amount for anything that I do. Um, but, uh, you know, compared to, say, the memoirs of Colin Powell or uh, Sarah, Sarah Palin's Palin, new yeah. book or, you know, those those people who are all kind of locked. I call that situation uh, conspiracy as usual because the big publishers, you know, who publish like Gerald Posner's Case Closed, Random House and all these guys, they're all locked in. You know who they are and these are the books that they, you know, they, they put out on the shelves and uh, – uh, you know, there's no way in hell that they are as popular as people make them out to be. 
but they, you know, there are certain personalities and certain establishment figures and certain ways of doing business that, you know, makes them the, the quote, bestsellers. Exactly. Yeah, while well, the most interesting stuff really kind of just percolates underneath. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll leave behind our esoteric discussion there. Before I let you go, uh, hardcore Dylan fan, I hear? Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, one of the great men of all ages. Have you ever Dylan. met the man? Once in 1978. Really? Could yeah. you please just tell that story? Because uh... well, I've got footage. Actually, I was with uh, Wow. I was with uh, Brian Stiebel, who had started the first Dylan fan scene in the country. It was a fan scene called Zimmerman Blues, and Dylan was playing at uh, SIU Carbondale, and we drove down. And we used to, I, you know, I used to be the rock critic for the Post Dispatch here too, mm-hmm. and and also I attended uh, Elvis Presley's funeral. In oh wow. But in this instance, you know, Dylan was, uh, you know, we went down there. Part of the reason why we went to Ellis's funeral, because Dylan was supposed to go show up and, and play on his grave. And the Beatles were going to reunite. And, you know, we'd follow all these crazy rumors just to mm-hmm. see what actually happened. And uh, yeah, there's really not much to say about that except that uh, uh, Steibel handed me his cameras. One of these, these were the 8-millimeter cameras uh, while we were running toward the plane as Dylan was coming along the tarmac. And uh, Dylan comes out, and we're all standing there. We shook his hand. I've never had a chance to talk to him. I'm sure he'd be the one guy I'd be totally intimidated about, you know. Because remember, yeah. I'm, I was friends with Timothy Leary and uh, Allen Ginsberg, and William Burroughs actually became a neighbor of mine after he died. Oh wow! <laughs> but I knew him before that. He he was buried in the uh, Bellefontaine Cemetery right next to my old apartment. But uh, I used to go out to Naropa and hang with these guys. But Dylan, I mean, Dylan is such a genius, uh, it, and, and these people who are critical of him, I just, to me, uh, strike me as people who would be critical of the ocean waves or something. You know, yeah. and Dylan is this vast creative force, you know, and, and who cares how the waves break here and there? Who cares about, you know, some of his songs are Christian period, you know, some of them are uh, acid drenched things, and some of them are folk, you know. That's what I like about him too, because. I can go. I almost almost exclusively listen to Dylan as far as discs and stuff go. Uh, yeah. I listen to the radio, but otherwise, if I'm listening to some in the CD player, I'll listen to Dylan. And it's like I may kind of get a little bored after a while with the folk stuff. I can just jump to the '70s era, or I can go to the electric part from the oh. uh, late '60s, or the Christian part, or even the new stuff. It's like he's like oh, a whole yeah. bunch of different styles and artists all wrapped into one guy. Yeah, my God, it's. Uh... It's incredible that way. People are actually very disappointed in me because my favorite period is the Christian period. You know, I think those are his best songs. I don't know why, but they are great. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people sort of like just give up on that part, but those three albums are really good. Yeah, and his recent stuff. I've just lately been listening to Telltale Signs. Oh, yeah. You heard that one? There's a bunch of outtakes and stuff in the, in the bootleg series. I mean, how can you not listen to that and, and not understand that this is the, the greatest artist do ever live? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I saw him three nights in a row here in Boston, and uh... really, well, I uh, my first trip to um, Los Angeles was in 1978 to see Dylan play the Universal Amphitheater. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. When I saw him three nights in a row, he played. I think he only repeated like two songs, so he yeah. played something like 45 fucking songs total over the yeah. course of three nights, and yeah. repeated like two of them, and it was like incredible stuff. Nobody yeah, he does that. Yeah, it's unreal. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. you know, you go to see the Rolling Stones, they're going to play the same set list every fucking time. Mm-hmm. In the same same way, it's like you only need to see that once. Um, it's amazing, yeah. Dylan is definitely amazing. We should do a whole show interspersed with 
songs from Dylan. <laughs> I think so. I think we'll have to do that sometime in the future. But I know you have a house guest, so we have okay. to uh, get rolling here. Okay, sorry what, for cutting it short. Uh, don't worry yeah. about it. Don't worry about it. You're definitely coming back on the show okay. in the not-too-distant future because there's so much more for us to talk about. Like I said, I just had the map here this week, folks, and we sort of just did a brief overlay of all the different stuff, and we'll end up honing in on a lot of these things as the months and years go by here on the program. So it's great to have you sort of break the uh, champagne bottle of Ken Thomas's appearances on BOA Audio. What can people look for from you in the future? Obviously, the website steamshovelpress.com is your hub. Uh, What do you have coming up? Yeah, well, uh, like I said, I'm working on two projects. I'm not quite sure where they're going, Uh, a book on Reich and a book on LBJ. Uh, And I'm trying to jumpstart Steam Shovel again. So everything is still in a very formative state right now. Uh, Definitely, though, next year, uh, it's been postponed another year. Is that that Maury Island UFO book, which um, which you can't actually you can't buy the original edition. If you go up on Amazon and look for the book, it's like two hundred fifty dollars. Oh man, for a copy, and a greatly expanded version of that uh, will be out next year for sure. And uh, currently, I recommend everybody get Secret and Suppress Two uh, because that'll just plug you right into the main line of uh, of all these different currents of uh, uh, thought and writing. And then otherwise. Uh, I do, you know, like earlier this week, I, I, I listened to that Gerald Hurd lecture, and I sat down and wrote an essay about it, and I just and I send it out uh, to people uh, via email, uh, just people I think might be interested in it. So um, anybody that I'm, I'm corresponding with is likely to get an essay at random. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm lucky, and now I'm on that list, so I've been getting some good stuff. Well, I can't thank you enough, Ken. I really appreciate uh, you coming on the show. Like I said, it's been a long time coming. should have happened a lot earlier, but our paths finally crossed uh, this past November when you got in touch with me, and it was like, i got to bite the bullet here. we got to get Ken Thomas on the show. I was so intimidated by your just sheer vast amount of work that I was like, I, I can't handle this, dude. This guy's just too prolific. I, I don't know where to begin, but you – you really uh <laughs> well well Tim thank you very much I'm flattered and I and I'm honored and uh I get a sense of satisfaction that uh, at least somebody out there was reading all the stuff I've been putting out over the years Absolutely yeah yeah good, and, and uh good to talk to you I hope we get a chance to do some more talking That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio season 5 big big super huge thanks to Ken Thomas for coming on the show I had a really great time talking to him looking forward to catching up with him again real soon you can find out more from Ken, of course, at his website, www.steamshovelpress.com. All one word, pretty easy to find, steamshovelpress.com. Check it out. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback. And we've got three emails for you this week since we're heading into our hiatus. And they're short ones, thankfully. We've got some really long ones that I've got in the mailbag we're going to get to. After the hiatus, I'm talking super long ones here. I'm going to have to just do them individually in listener feedback segments. That way we can tackle them all. But since we've got three short ones here, I figure we can do these nice and quick for folks at the end of the show here this week. The first one comes from Dave, no hometown listed, merely Dave. And here's what he has to say. Hey, BOA team, just an observation. It is interesting that while you are banal of America... Your website shows a Canadian flag when your IP is identified. By BOA, I assume you mean USA. Technically, Canada and every other nation in the Western Hemisphere is in an America. 
Hard to think of Fidel Castro and Hugo Chavez as Americans, huh? Keep up the great work. You folks have one of the best podcasts around. Dave. No hometown listed. Thanks for writing in, Dave. Thank you for the props on the show. I appreciate it quite a bit. You really uh, actually kind of raised something that I never even considered before, and that's just the irony that we are banal of America, and we are hosted on a Canadian web server hosting company. .easy is our web folks, and they do an outstanding job. i got to put over .easy. I rarely ever have any problems with their service, so I kind of just stumbled into that service, you know, five, six years ago, and we've been using them ever since. It never even dawned on me the irony of Banal of America being on a Canadian server. So thank you for pointing that out. As I explained on my appearance on Paratopia back in January, the Banal of America name really was an accident. It was really just a vanity website for me before I even got mixed up in Esoterica. And then I started writing about Esoterica, and I had the URL, and just started putting my stuff up there. And next thing you know, Banal of America was sort of like a snowball rolling downhill. And I've gotten emails from people that suggest we change the name of the website, change the name of the show, try and put the emphasis on the paranormal or the esoteric, but really, BOA is this organic beast, if you will. We never planned to be an esoteric media fixture, so it's all sort of come along on its own, and to, and to upset the apple cart by changing the name would be kind of weird in general and be way too difficult to go back and change a bunch of stuff on BOA. That is the origin story of the Banal of American name. We had no intention of ever getting mixed up in the paranormal scene. So now that we are, we're just sticking with the name. Next email comes from Chris in Warrington, UK, an international listener. Here's what he has to say. Hi, Tim. Love the shows. Not sure what you're smoking, but by the amount of times I hear your lighter, it must be roll-ups or a pipe. LOL. Why not try using a candle or fire lighter? Then there will be less noise. Keep up the good work, Chris in Warrington, UK. Seems like every season we do at least one email about my smoking and the clicking sound that you hear on the show. Sometimes I take them out, but other times I leave them in. I kind of like them as sort of a weird little artifact of the rawness of the program in that you hear me lighting a cigarette while the guest is talking. And if you listen to the BOA Audio Lost cast, I'm even more brazen with the cigarette smoking and, and really just uh, start talking halfway through taking a haul on a cigarette. I, I find that very amusing, but rest assured, I'm still hard at work on figuring out the best way to quit smoking. It has been a tumultuous 2010 so far here for me. It's just been drama-filled and not exactly the best of years so far. That's why I'm looking forward to this hiatus quite a bit, but maybe during the hiatus I'll take some time to really put some effort into quitting smoking once again. It's terrible for you. I do not encourage it to anyone out there. There's nothing cool about smoking. Trust me, my friends. I am merely an addict, and if I could quit, I would totally do it today. I've never even considered using a different means to light the cigarette, although I'm amused by your suggestion of using a candle. I'm just 99% sure that that would somehow result in a disastrous fire of some kind right in the midst of a BOA audio episode. If I can't even manage the audio equipment without eventually spilling coke on it, 
it's only a matter of time before I would knock over a candle or drop it on my lap or spill the wax all over myself right in the middle of the interview, which would be hilarious, and, and I'd probably have to include it in the episode, but uh, if you can avoid it, you probably should. So, so I'll stick to uh, lighting the cigarettes with the lighter, and um, hopefully the noise won't be too problematic for you, Chris, and you'll grow to love it like many other BOA Audio listeners do. Final email, really nice and simple, short and sweet. This emailer gets the gold star here for the week. He comes from Philip, no hometown listed, and he has saved our ass here by picking up an error that we put out last week on the program. Here's what he says. Angela Joyner links are in the wrong order. File A is the second half, and file B is the first half. Signed, Philip. Thank you so much. I always try to read these emails at the end of the show, or at least give props to the folks who write in when they catch these errors. As I said to Philip when I wrote him back, these are the sort of mistakes that happen when you're putting the show together at 3 o'clock in the morning and you're already pretty burned out. So, thankfully, he wrote us, let us know that the files were actually misnamed, and I promptly fixed that as soon as possible, and thankfully, we didn't get any other emails from folks who were confused, and hopefully... Nobody got too weirded out or uh, discombobulated by the dual file naming error. So big thanks to Philip Goldstar for you this week, my friend, for picking up that mistake. I really appreciate you writing in and not just letting it slip through the cracks because I never would have noticed it if you hadn't written in. There you have it. Those are the three emails. Thank you for writing in, Philip, Dave, and Chris. You guys are awesome. Pithy emails makes it really easy for me to read here at the end of the show. As I said, we've got some super long ones. We're going to get to them. And for all the folks who have been emailing me over the last couple of weeks, sit tight. At the conclusion of this week's edition of BOA Audio, I'm going to have a lot of time on my hands, and then I will be able to answer a bunch of emails that have been piling up in the BOA inbox. I owe just a whole bunch of people responses, and trust me, I have been looking at your unresponded emails, and I'm going to get to them as soon as possible, hopefully by the end of this weekend. So for the folks who are awaiting an answer from me, you're going to get it real soon, I promise. For the folks who want to write in and be a part of BOA Audio listener feedback in the future, we could always use more emails from folks. I love reading them nonetheless, whether we get them on the show at the end or not. Whether they're long or short, I'm interested in what you have to say. How do you write to me? How do you get in touch with Ben All of America and possibly get into the BOA Audio listener feedback segment of the show. That's simple. There's three methods. You can either go to benallofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com and click the contact button, or you can write to BOA Audio at hotmail.com. That's the second method. And finally, you can join up at the official BOA Forum, the US of E.com, T H E U S O F E.com. Lots of fun stuff going on over there. I should mention here, since we're going to be on hiatus soon, that we'll be having a number of cool contests at the US of E coming up over the next month or so. March Madness Pick'em Contest for sure. It's going to be the first time we do that this year, but we're definitely going to do it because my beloved Syracuse Orangemen are really riding high this year. I'm hoping for some good things for them here in the tournament. And probably an Oscar Pick'em contest as well. And the big one, the big daddy of all U.S. of E. prediction contests, the 2010 
Major League Baseball Pick'em Contest. This is definitely the most hotly contested showdown that we have at the US of E. There's something like at least 12 people, including all of the great esoteric superstars who appear on the baseball special participating in the baseball pick'em contest. So you definitely want to get over to the usofe.com if you want to have some fun, make some predictions on sports and pop culture, and of course talk about esoterica. There's always some great esoteric discussion going on there, but we don't take it too seriously much like this show because there's life outside of the paranormal, my friends. Those are the three methods. Any of those will get you in touch with me and most likely put your correspondence in line for a future edition of BOA Audio listener feedback. Up next, of course, it is time to thank the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff. Allow me to roll through the list of tremendous writers and contributors at Banal of America. Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, A.M. Murphy, Marla Pena, our contributing cartoonist Andy Carolin, and our webmaster Jeremy Boston. Since the last time you heard from me, we've posted four new columns at Banal of America. Let me roll through the list of what they are. Leslie talks about the new film The Wolfman and discusses the Wolfman werewolf mythos in and of itself and why there is a little more truth to the whole thing than just Hollywood fiction. I think you'll like that quite a bit, especially if you've seen the movie. Although I'm hearing bad reviews of the movie, so I don't know. Maybe people haven't seen it. But nonetheless, The Werewolf, it is an esoteric fixture, and Leslie discusses it in the latest edition of Grey Matters. Then after that, Marla Pena wrote a passionate piece for her column Shadow of the Shinigami, where she looks at the Mexican UFO scene and MUFON's role in investigating some cases down there and some friction that developed between MUFON and some of the prominent Mexican ufologists. This is really an eye-opening piece from Marla Pena. If you haven't read that one, you definitely want to get over to Banal of America and check it out. Then we've got an all-new Richard's Room 101 from our friend Richard Thomas in the UK. This time around, Richard takes a look at the ghost phenomenon, and more specifically the subgenre of crisis ghost phenomenon, something that I'd never even heard of before. He examines it in the latest edition of Room 101. Really uh, an interesting piece from Richard Thomas, one you want to definitely check out at BOA. And finally, we've got the return of Tina Senna's Esotericana, this time around titled The Ghost in the Cathode Ray Tube looking at ghost hunting TV shows and what she likes and what she dislikes about those programs. Ghost hunting TV shows, they are so hot right now. They are so huge right now. But Tina Senna does not cut them a break. She really looks at them with a critical eye, and I respect and appreciate that. You can find that in the latest edition of Tina Senna's Esotericana at BOA. So there you go. Two ghost pieces, a MUFON and international ufology piece from Marla Pena, and Leslie looks at the esoteric stalwart that is the werewolf. Top to bottom, a whole bunch of different and unique, thought-provoking pieces from the BOA staff. Thanks to them for their contributions this past week, and of course, stay tuned to Banal of America for tons and tons more from the BOA staff. They're going to be carrying the load, I'm sure, here in March while I take the hiatus and get refreshed and ready for the latter half of Season 5. 
We say it week in and week out, but it is the truth, my friends. If you're only listening to Banal of America and you're not reading the columns at BOA, you're only getting half the story. BanalofAmerica.com, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. In keeping with the tradition that we started last year, right before we went to hiatus, I don't really feel comfortable asking people to make donations when I'm about to take a month off from the show. I'll save that sort of big push at the end of the season. So for all those folks who would like to make a donation, sit on your cash for a little while, spend it on something you want for yourself, and hopefully come on back in April and make a donation to BOA. I would greatly appreciate it then. Thank you for all the folks who have been making donations so far this season. You guys are awesome. I really appreciate it. And for all those folks who have been procrastinating about making a donation, you can wait another month because I'm not going to be bugging you (laughs) for a while about it. But I'll be on your case come April for donations to Banal of America and BOA Audio. Obviously, there's nothing really to plug here for next week. As I have beaten to death here throughout the program, we are taking our annual mid-season hiatus following this week's edition of the program. This month-long break is going to be spent relaxing, reading books, scheduling and taping new interviews, finally installing BOA 2.0, and just generally getting my shit together as we head into the latter half of Season 5. Despite the break, you're still going to be able to hear from me on occasion here because we're going to keep doing the BOA Audio Lost cast that we launched about a month ago, so there'll still be these sporadic audio appearances from me every week with my good buddy, the constant Jeremy Vaney on the BOA Audio Lost cast. So I'm not totally leaving the airwaves, just taking a break from producing BOA audio for the next month or so. We're coming back, of course, in April, the first week of April, the week of April 4th, and it's going to be a double episode week featuring the 2010 BOA Audio Baseball Special as well as a pure esoteric episode for the non-baseball enthusiasts. Every year I get some flack from folks who don't like baseball and don't understand why we do a baseball episode, and we usually just tell them to wait till next week, you'll get a pure esoteric episode. But since we're coming back with the baseball episode, I want to make sure that everybody can get a dose of BOA audio that first week back. So it's going to be a double episode week, and I'm hoping to bring in a really huge superstar for our pure esoteric episode that week. So keep your eyes peeled to Banal America. The week of April 4th is going to be just jam-packed at BOA with a litany of esoteric superstars, some talking about baseball, some talking about pure esoterica, but just tons of folks are going to be coming at you via BOA audio that first week of April, I can assure you. So Stay tuned to Banal of America. I'm going to put some teasers up, I'm sure, at BOA or at least on the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, or on the Twitter feed, twitter.com slash banal. So there's lots of ways you can follow what we're going to be doing. I am definitely going to miss the program. I am certainly going to enjoy the downtime, though. I am just really burned out over the last couple of weeks especially, and I'm sure you can probably tell from the sheer length of time it's taking me to get these episodes out to you. I'm just completely burned out, and it's time for the mid-season hiatus. Couldn't come at a better time. Spring training, you gotta love that. 
So on that note, I guess we'll close the book here on this edition of VOA Audio. Thanks to Ken Thomas for coming on the show once again. Thanks to the three folks who wrote in for VOA Audio listener feedback. And most of all, I want to thank the awesome VOA Audio listeners. You guys are the best. I get so many emails from people thanking me for the show, and I just want to thank you. If it wasn't for you guys out there listening, I wouldn't even be doing this anymore. I would have wrapped it up a long time ago. But you keep pushing me to keep going, and you keep giving me that encouragement to keep producing VOA Audio, and I do it for you guys. So thank you so much for making Been All of America Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. And with that, I bid you farewell for now. You'll be hearing from me the first week of April with a double episode of BOA Audio. Until then, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.